I'm Amy Jo Martin. Welcome to the Why Not Now show. You know that thing you've been thinking about doing? Yeah, that one. Why not now? Have you ever actually taken the time to ask yourself, what's stopping me? Let's talk it through. This is your chance to give that idea the attention it deserves and take action. Each episode, I have a chat with a fascinating person from entrepreneurs to athletes, celebrities, my parents, rocket scientists, and all walks of life. We talk through a critical time when they've asked themselves, why not now? We dissect that day or even that moment, step by step. Today we have Chris Saka on the show. This is one I've been really looking forward to, and it was one of those people that I reached out and said, hey, will you come on the show? And when he said yes, it was just like this feeling of accomplishment. Chris is one of the individuals that I place into this coveted private Twitter list that I call wise. And I just try to learn as much as I possibly can. Chris is a billionaire. He is self-made. He is an investor. And he has quite the windy path and journey. Former Google employee, early Google employee. And he took a different route though. He has been able to spot investments in companies like Twitter, Uber, and many others early on way before they hit the radar, and he's done quite well running the most successful venture capital firm ever, uh, according to to many experts and, and analysts. He's able to just spot things early, but also his wisdom. It's, it's quite fascinating. He's also on the Shark Tank, so you may have seen him as a guest on the Shark Tank, he's the one wearing the crazy cowboy shirt, and he'll stand up against Cuban every once in a while, too. So take a listen. This was such a joy, and I had so many questions for Chris. We, we probably only got to a third of them, so I'm hoping he'll come back on the show. And I'll see you on the flip side. Oh, yeah. And also on the flip side, I will share my own why not now, something I've been waiting and holding off on sharing until now because I knew as soon as I said it more publicly and put it out there, then I would be 100% accountable. So I look forward to uh, saying this one out loud. Before we get started, I want to tell you about my partners at Design Pickle. You know when you're in a pickle because you need a design, but you don't have the time or maybe even the skill to do it yourself. Many of us have been there. Design Pickle has been a lifesaver for me. Here's how they're set up. You pay a flat rate monthly fee and you're given a dedicated designer for all of your needs. You heard that right. Unlimited graphic designs, unlimited requests, and the first 14 days are risk-free. You get a full refund if you cancel in the first two weeks. 
Why not now, listeners like yourself, get 30% off their first month at Design Pickle? You can go to designpickle.com forward slash why not now to redeem the offer. For me, the process has been painless and ego-free. In fact, many of the posts you're seeing on my social media channels were created by my buddies at Design Pickle, specifically Jacob at Design Pickle. That's what's cool is that you get a dedicated designer. I'm on a first name basis with my designer. A mentor once said to me, just because you can doesn't always mean you should. Do what you're uniquely qualified to do. Design Pickle helps me do just that. Go to designpickle.com forward slash why not now to redeem the offer. We tackle the most taboo topics on the Why Not Now show. Oftentimes, you're hearing guests share things they've never shared before. In the spirit of things we don't typically talk about, you should know that the Why Not Now show is supported by Poopery. Yep, the original before you go toilet spray. It's magic. My friends at Poopery have literally taken the smell out of you know what. This pure blend of essential oils stops bathroom odor before it begins. Visit poopery.com and why not now listeners get 20% off with code why not now. That's all one word. Also, you can now get Poopery at Bed Bath and Beyond. So Chris Saka, welcome to the Why Not Now show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I mean, why not now? <laughs> why not now? You're already into it. I, li- I like this. Uh, so let's hop right in. Podcast is going pretty well for you. You've got some pretty killer guests already. Oh, thank you. Like yourself, I, I'm pretty jazzed about it. It's been a blast. And one of the, the best parts is seeing on, on social and emails come through and people talking about their own why not now moments and how they're tackling them. So that's extremely cool to see that feedback loop. Yeah. Did I see Mark Cuban has done this podcast? Yes, he has. He was... You know my relationship with Mark Cuban. I can't let him have the last word in anything. And so that was a that was a serious driver from why I'm here. I got to clean up the mess he left. There you go. We, we can tackle that. I have a couple of, of questions around that relationship a little bit. And um, you're already off to a good start because Mark rolls up to the interview at a pool in Vegas. So you can imagine the audio and the the editing that we had to do around that background noise. So thank you oh, for you being a pro. A he was. Yeah, he was at a pool and people were coming up to him and and he's my first guest out of the gate when we launched. So I was just like, it's it's Cuban. Like, how do I? There's not much I could do. Say hey. Classic Mark Cuban bringing his A game, giving you a lot of personal attention. I love it. Yeah, he was he was great though. It was it was quite funny to hear some of the uh, fans roll up to him wherever. I just envision him, you know, sitting at the pool, people coming up to him. Yeah, the most invisible I've ever felt in my life is being out in public with Mark. <laughs> I. I mean, it's funny, since doing TV and, and, and actually from, from podcasts, believe it or not, a lot of people know me from startup podcasts. And so I, I, I get people, you know, who come up, a lot of young people who watch Shark Tank who want selfies and stuff. But if I'm walking around with Mark Cuban, it's literally like I don't exist. We just had to film a segment for Shark Tank down in Alabama at an Auburn University football game. And I, I joked like, hey, at one point I could literally just take my pants off and nobody here would see it. And that was like a running joke for a while. And then at one point we were done shooting and I needed to change into clothes to go into the football game. I had to like get out of my super hot cowboy shirt and into Auburn fan clothes. <laughs> and I actually did it. I literally just changed my entire outfit there in the parking lot 
of the football game and no one noticed because Mark Cuban was standing five feet away from me. <laughs> well, in some ways it could be a nice decoy for you. So it was, it was amazing. It's total camera. <laughs> yeah. Fly under the radar with that guy. I would like to hear about a moment when you had to ask yourself, why not now? And not just skim over this, but get down into the nitty gritty. Talk about that day. Talk about that time, how you were feeling and let's zoom in on it. There's been a bunch of those times. Uh, I think my basically my life and my career are hallmarked by some really pivotal moments that frankly ended up being not something I'd milled on for a long time, but uh, just kind of pulled the trigger and wrote it out. Uh, but one of those in particular was when I decided to quit Google. I The year was 2007. I just wrapped four years at Google and so I invested into my original stock grant, which wasn't very much uh, compared to most Googlers. I was worth less than a million dollars, which is an insane amount of money uh, for everyone in the whole world except for someone who was at Google because when I got there, I was kind of a junior person and had risen through the ranks. And so what they'd done is they'd stacked a bunch of money in front of me, a bunch of new stock options that I would invest into over time if I stuck around. And I had the most amazing job. I worked uh, in this role where I got to do kind of anything I wanted there. I got to start any new divisions I wanted, and I did. I started a big uh, spectrum division and Wi-Fi division and worked on location-based stuff. I got to work on mergers and acquisitions. I got to solve problems for Eric Schmidt, our CEO, and Larry and Sergey, our co-founders. I got to travel a ton, do a ton of public speaking. I, I literally had the greatest job in the world. Um, and the reason I know I had the greatest job in the world is about a week after I quit, quit, I, uh, I was sitting at my parents' house in, um, upstate New York for the holidays. And I, um, and I, I literally read a New York times article and the New York times article said, why would Chris Saka quit the greatest job in the world? <laughs> and I sat there and kind of cried. I was like, Oh no, what have I done? I was, uh, I was, I was totally freaked out, but it turned out to be one of the most important and valuable and rewarding decisions I ever made. And, and part of that was because despite having, I think what on paper looked like the greatest job in the world, the reality was Google started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, we talk often about the transition from being a startup to a big company and the politics that come with that and the hierarchy that comes with that. And Google resisted it longer than, than anyone I know, than any other company I know. I mean, even when there are thousands of employees there, they built stuff, uh, Shona Brown, who is an unsung hero. She was one of the topics for a long time. Um, built these communication systems where we all in the company kept each other apprised of what was going on all the time. And so it felt like a startup, meaning every week we would type uh, snippets, five things we did this week, five things we're going to accomplish next week. And you hit publish on those and they were shared with everybody in the company who wanted to see them. You'd publish OKRs. OKRs were your objectives and key results for the quarter what you personally were going to do that quarter, and then you'd score yourself at the end of the quarter on what you on how you did, and then you'd set new goals. And those are available to everyone in the company. We all had internal resumes, which were kind of amazing. Next to our names, we had not just the resume we used to apply to work at the company, which is always cool to still have that for all your coworkers, know what their background was and what their skills were, but we kept internal resumes of what we accomplished while we worked there. And so you kind of knew Hey, is this person getting cool stuff done? What are their skills? What are their interests? What have they been working on? Maybe I should recruit them to come work on my project. Uh, we had 
project requirements documents and notes from every meeting that were shared. At the end of the meeting, the notes were not a secretarial function, but they were a really important way of sharing knowledge. And so there was all this stuff there that kept that company feeling small for the longest time. And yet, in the end, by 2007, I would find myself in meetings where the first question is people would ask, what are you doing in this meeting? Rather than for years, it's like, oh, cool, you're here. We can help. We have extra, you know, that way we have extra minds and, and bodies on the job. Um, instead, people felt really threatened by someone from outside their territory. There was one particular moment for me where, uh, where a young woman who worked on my team, I think she was literally 22, first job out of Stanford, had gone and um, without any permission at all, had flown to Ontario and convinced Research in Motion, the company that ran BlackBerry, to install Google Talk on all of their handsets for free. They weren't gonna charge us any money. That's normally the kind of deal where you as a, as a software application company would pay them to install that. And remember, this is back in the days before you could just go download a bunch of apps. Uh, your apps were basically whatever your device manufacturer, your carrier put on that phone for you. And so she flew to Ontario and she did this deal. She submitted it to legal review really quickly. They said, yep, it's legit. They made a couple of changes to the paperwork, all good. And then she came back and showed us and we we're like, holy cow, this is a product. Google Talk is a product that really needed distribution help. It's a competitor to, to Skype. Um, we tried to buy Skype back then and couldn't get the deal done. And so instead we decided to build a competitor. And so this thing needed help. And so she went and got that done with just total initiative. And so I went and sent a note to the senior management team. And by then my visibility was higher and I was considered an executive. And I sent a note to the senior management team saying, hey, everyone, congratulations to Mary Himmenkuhl. I'll shout her out. She still works at Google today and she runs uh, one of their entrepreneurship programs there. I said, congratulations to Mary Himmenkuhl. Total hustle. Just went up there, found her way into research in motion, sat down with one of the co-CEOs, convinced them to do this deal. Holy cow, this is what Google stands for. It's amazing. And all these notes from Eric, Larry, and Sergey started going around like, you know, the, the Attagirl notes, like, hey, all right, right on. I'm glad that's still happening in 2007 kind of stuff. And then one executive who I won't call out chimed in and said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's supposed to be my team's deal. And, you know, because it got done outside of our team, we're going to invalidate it. So we need to tear that up. <laughs> and, and poor Mary is like, wait, what? I just, I mean, can we all agree that what we did was pro Google? We moved the ball forward. We went through the proper channels of getting legal to review it. So it's a legit deal. But literally the mobile team tore that deal up and it never got done again. And so it was one of those moments where I just said, as a company gets bigger, people start defining themselves by their territory and their job title more than their actual contribution or the overall health of the company. And that was a breaking point for me. You know, my, my skills are generalist. I'm not really a specialist. I'm, I'm pretty good at a lot of things and not amazing at any particular things. And so in those early days, I was able to float and be helpful in many, many different capacities. I could be a gl you know, some glue that would that would bind together different disparate parts of the company that didn't know each other and help them communicate and collaborate. And I could get stuff started. I'm a starter. But as I started to see the politics and the territory getting in the way of the overall health of the company, that's when it started to break for me. And in parallel, I'd already made two startup investments. I invested in 
photo bucket was my first one and I didn't really have the money. So I wrote it on a two credit card check. And, um, and by then that was doing really well. And then I'd also invested in Twitter and it wasn't clear at the time that Twitter was going to be, you know, this globally dominant media platform, but it was obvious that we had something special on our hands and the time I would spend hanging out at their office either before Google or after Google or on weekends, just, I felt alive. I felt like we were working just expressly on product and thinking about users and thinking about the future and not thinking about what, you know, I think people often refer to as TPS reports and, and the politics of cost center something fell into. And that was invigorating. And so there I was right around uh, just after Thanksgiving of uh, 2007. And I said, I'm going to leave. And a couple of my friends even said, hey, look, you've been here four years. You now get a sabbatical. You get to get paid for two, uh, two months of not working. Like, go take your sabbatical. And I, I could have used the money. I mean, it was, it was just free money and free vested. And yet I, it just occurred to me. I was like, I really just want to move on. This is great, but I want to get back into startups. And so I walked in and let Larry and Sergey know that uh, my last day would be in a couple weeks. And they were super cool about it. They threw me a big party and I you know, left there with a bunch of friends and consider myself a really proud alum of Google. I'm, I'm very grateful for everything I learned there and I still believe deeply in that company. But I just suddenly found myself outside of Google with uh, you know, again, more money than almost, you know, every person on the planet, but at less than a million dollars, that's not the kind of money you, you need to get into angel investing. Uh, I didn't know any outside investors. I didn't have a plan to be a venture capitalist. I wasn't even really sure what I was going to do. I just knew I needed to pull the trigger and do something different and smaller and more entrepreneurial, something over which I had more control over my own destiny and no politics and where I would define my own fate. Which is pretty incredible, especially I recently learned that you only have, what, three people, three full-time people at Lowercase? I think we just hired a fourth. We hired okay. a guy just out of college to help us out. Okay, um, which is still so, yeah, <laughs> mind-blowing, thinking about the amount of deals, the amount of um, just exposure and, and progress, success you've had, and knowing it's it's still so lean, and that's probably in good part why you've done so well. But there's over the last week or so, I've had four people, friends, uh, just basically friends who have for one reason or another um, decided to leave the corporate world. Sometimes a few of them were kind of pushed to leave and some of them have decided. But uh, over the last couple of years, you know, this has been a huge trend, especially with a lot of people that I went to college with or that I've worked with in the past. And Knowing what you know and the, and the visibility that you have into startups and progressive young companies that really do have, almost have to have an attractive culture in order to attract talent, what's probably the number one thought or piece of advice you would give to a big corporate company right now when it comes to culture? First of all, I just want to say I have been pushed out of a company before too. I was pushed out of a law firm, so I certainly know what that was like. Uh, four days before September 11th, I got laid off from Fenwick and West along with a bunch of my other incoming, uh, a bunch of my other law school kind of hiring classmates so they could make room for the new incoming class. 
And so I certainly know what it's like to be on that end of the, the equation. Was that what launched Salinger? <laughs> uh, it was. There was a gap year. So, yeah, okay. I mean, to go back and fill that in. So I owe a ton of money in my own name, both student loans and some day trading losses because I made some really risky trades. I took a job as a lawyer. I was starting to pay it back by basically working as a lawyer during the day and taking on side projects at night to pay back all this money I owed. And then I got laid off. And for about four days, I had great job prospects. My old clients really liked me. They were going to bring me on to the business side and their companies. And uh, and then September 11th happened. And by no means do I want to ever compare you know the tragedy in New York to the inconveniences that that befell us in Silicon Valley. But that day basically ended the optimism that there might be a recovery in tech. And so again, the suffering doesn't even begin to compare with what was actually happening to everyone in New York. But it was that was the beginning of the end for tech for the next few years. You literally couldn't get a U-Haul trailer out of San Francisco because they had all gone one way and not come back. back. I mean, it was just so it was so bleak back then. Um, and so, yeah, so I started banging around Silicon Valley trying to trying to find anything to do. And I had a business card that said Chris Saka and nobody would hire me. Um, and they'd say stuff like, you sound like a good kid. You know, you'll find something. Something will come through for you. And I was good at the hustle. I was good at getting myself into the meetings. I would often sneak into the back of the networking events through the kitchen because I spoke Spanish. And I'd get in there and look people in the eye and go with a firm handshake and pitch, pitch, pitch. And, you know, and I had, I graduated uh, near the top of my class at Georgetown Law School. I had good credentials. I could talk. I, I had skills, but it was just so dead. It was bleak. At one point I sent over uh, 700 out without hearing a response back. And so, um, eventually I decided to rebrand. And so I created a thing called the Salinger group, which was basically me but I just had a website. I let the domain lapse a long time ago by accident, but you can go see it at the Wayback Machine archive.org. It's still there. You'll see it says a lot of nothing. Uh, and I came up with a business card that my now wife, then best friend, uh, designed for me. And it was pretty cool and flashy, but it said nothing. And I just, I, I called myself a principal at the Salinger Group. And it was amazing how that changed the conversation with people I was networking with. And this is rebranding, but pre-cowboy shirt days, right? So that that was a reinvention again. Well, the cowboy brand, we'll get to the cowboy. <laughs> that wasn't even really a conscious branding thing. That just kind of happened. That was a very intentional, hey, I need to get people to look, give me a fresh look and think that uh, there's there's more to me than, you know, than they're seeing. And so I would walk up to people, same people, same kind of events. You know, I, literally, I was at the Indus Entrepreneurs had huge gatherings and the Chinese Software Professionals of America and, or the Chinese Software Professionals Association and the World Internet Forum and the Foresight Institute. I, I mean, I had a calendar of these things weekly and I would just go to all of them. I would walk up now with this business card that says the Sounder Group and people were like, oh, yeah, I've heard of you guys. You guys do good work. Hey, why don't you help us on this thing? And before you know it, I had this robust consulting practice doing some legal, some business advice. I was writing business plans. I was helping companies rename and rebrand. I even, I, it was amazing how much work I had on my plate suddenly. And I was, I'll say as a, as a footnote to that, as the Salinger group kind of, um, continued on and became successful. And as it looked like there might be light at the end of the tunnel for this economy, 
a bunch of my friends who had also been laid off, either you know whether it was from law firm jobs or, or other places in the economy, had all asked, hey, do you mind if I fill in the gap in my resume with just saying I worked at the Sounder Group? And I was like, yep, knock yourself out. I can give you an email address and you can say you did whatever you wanted. And so <laughs> there are a bunch of proud Sounder Group alumni out there in the world working in your company right now. You never know. I'm, I think I was actually one of them at some point. And you should have a reunion at some point too. How fun would that be? Give out some awards. I did read or heard, I can't remember which, that you started shifting your vernacular from I to we. So you started saying, you know, we versus I more. And that was a part of, of the shift. That sounds very intentional. And what sparked that? It was very intentional then, but I do it today still. You know, I think one of the things that's interesting about our, and I'll say our fun, uh, because I do have partners, but even before I did, when it was just uh, me and um, and Serena, our COO, just two of us, uh, I said our because one of the things I found was as successful as I was right out of the gate and as strong as my reputation in the industry was, I was still pretty easy to F with. Um, other funds and other partners found it easy to talk trash about me and, and push me out of deals. And because I didn't have a big office on Sand Hill Road, I wasn't a long-term venerable institution. I didn't have a gang of like 12 white dudes who would be offended by you, um, by you defaming me. And so I realized that while I didn't want to bring on a bunch of people and create overhead and waste a ton of time, I wanted to keep it all about just doing the deals and supporting the companies. At the same time, what I thought was an advantage by being small was really sometimes a liability in terms of the competitive positioning. This goes for startups too. It was it was really interesting. In the early days, I had this startup called Fanbridge that I'm still deeply invested in. I love these guys and they've spun out another company there and they're doing particularly well. But they were three guys, two uh, founders in the US, and their CTO was in Argentina. They were originally in the email business. So they were managing email lists for bands and fans and corporations. They were sending hundreds of millions to billions of emails a month. And as I went to go help them raise money from other angels and, and small VCs, I remember pointing out how awesome it was that, and can you believe these guys, they've accomplished all this with just three people. And so for what what for me resonated as an incredible testament to the power and efficiency of just a few few guys, I started to realize made them sound rinky-dink and fly-by-night and not as impressive. And we see this happen in startups all the time. Like companies raise a ton, a ton of money, bring on more and more headcount. They actually slow down their innovation, but it sounds more legit and they sound like they have more gravitas. And so I was trying to balance that. How do I, how do I give people comfort that our firm is big enough and getting all the work done and doing all the compliance, and yet at the same time be small enough that, you know, we don't ever have to say to an entrepreneur like, "Hey, that's a great deal. Wait till my next partner meeting and I pitch it to all twelve people in my partnership, and then I can get back to you on that." You know, I always wanted to be in a position to say, "I love the deal, and we're going to do it right now. Let's shake hands." You know, we. Uh, we always got asks from our investors, our limited partners who invest in our fund. Hey, when's your big LP meeting, your annual LP meeting? And most funds have those. They're really luxurious, garish affairs where they rent a resort somewhere and they fly in all their investors and they 
entertain everybody and pour good wine and do some team building events and bring in some of their best uh, founders and entrepreneurs to give presentations. And it's, it's a hobnobbing, but it not only costs money, but it <laughs> takes a lot of time and effort to put that stuff together. And you have to have, you know, event managers who do that and stuff. And so we used to just say to our, our LPs, like we're, we're never going to have one of those because I don't want to have to staff up and create more overhead just to do that. Like if you want to catch up, swing by where I am, uh, come to Truckee up in the mountains and we'll hang out and we'll talk about it. What did you call it? The pub tub? Is that where? The jam tub. The jam tub. That's right. Tra- Travis named it the jam tub, the hot <laughs> tub where we spend way too much time. He spends way too much time. Um, he could spend hours and hours there, like more than humanly possible. <laughs> but, you know, we didn't even have swag. Like we literally didn't have lowercase, uh, the logo on anything but our website until I guess two years ago, a guy named Jamie Lindsay, who's a, who's a, he was a Twitter fan who has since become a real friend. I love him. Uh, Jamie was just like, this is goddamn embarrassing. And so he just went and made a bunch of swag for us and just <laughs> mailed it to me. It was, I was like, I think he heard me complaining about no swag at some point. And so he made a bunch of t-shirts some backpacks, some travel shaving kits, etc. I mean, it's amazing. I wear it all the time. We've since gotten our act together a little bit and made some swag, but we just were the least overhead. I mean, by the way, here's a related point when it comes to the leanness of our organization. So Shark Tank asks, you've seen Shark Tank, you see at the beginning where they look like a baller, right? Mm -hmm. So the show Cuban standing next to his plane and holding his Dallas Mavericks championship trophy and just looking so baller and there's Damon and his amazing offices and his fancy car and there's Robert in front of his 50,000 square foot house and his array of sports cars. And, uh, then at his big company headquarters, you see Kevin on his boat and drinking fine wine and opening the NASDAQ. And Lori is there on, on some mega yacht in Newport Harbor. And, you know, Barbara, I don't want to leave out Barbara. She's the real estate queen of New York and up in some sky rises, shaking hands on deals. And so they came time to shoot my package and they're like, all right, Chris, um, we need to look, we need you to look baller. So let's go, uh, <laughs> let's go shoot in front of your plane. I'm like plane. I don't own a plane. Like that's, I fly private sometimes, but owning a plane, like the economics on that make no sense. And they're like, Oh, okay. Well, what about all your sports cars? I'm like sports cars, I'm like Uber <laughs> cars. I'm like, I have a Tesla. It's awesome. But just standing in front of one Tesla is not going to impress anybody. And they're like, what about your house? I'm like, my house in Truckee is a three bedroom. It's still the house I lived in um, before I raised my fund and had all the success. I'm like, it's really, it's going to look like a cottage and it's not going to blow anybody's mind. And they're like, well, what do we do? What about your boat? I'm like, a boat? Oh my God, I would never own a boat. <laughs> and so they really struggle. Let's just shoot this whole thing in your offices. You know, we'll use your, uh, we'll use your big meeting rooms and stuff. I was like, I don't think you guys understand. I've told you, but we don't have a corporate headquarters. And they're like, there's nowhere that even just says lowercase capital on the wall. I'm like, nope. We we all work from home um, or out on the road if we're traveling. And if we need to do a meeting, we borrow offices that belong to our portfolio companies. I love it. And these guys <laughs> shook their heads. They're like, how are we going to convince America that you're a baller, that you're that you're rich and successful? You don't have any of the trappings of actually being successful. And so in the end, we we shot that. For those of you who are in San Francisco, you might recognize the first part where we're all uh, clinking wine glasses was shot around 8.39 in the morning on the roof of 
the battery, like a little Soho house type club in San Francisco. Um, and the second part that is made to look like a lowercase conference room because they literally put the lowercase logo on a, on a projector behind me, uh, is actually the offices of heavy bit an incubator for hardcore tech companies in San Francisco that we, we're an investor in and friends with. And so I literally borrowed two places to pretend like I have a space big enough to convene anyone. That's so funny. It's, I mean, the, you should have said, I'm a, I'm a virtual baller. You can just find me online. That's where, that's where I, I have my presence, but it's, it's also a um, kind of a shift I'm sure in just what you find valuable and where you spend your time and what you find interesting and, and things like that. But kind of going back to staying small, it just occurred to me that there's probably a correlation between why not now and that question that we ask ourselves and our ability to ask it and the answer to the amount of people that work for us or the amount of geographic anchors or the size of, of company if, if this were applied to a company. So I'm just envisioning kind of this graph and you're more likely to uh, be able to act on your why not now if you, if you stay small and you stay the, the agile, not necessarily scrappy, but you can still be agile and operate like a cruise ship but maneuver like a speedboat type of mentality. Um, sure. I mean, look, a couple. It's, it's not widely known, but a couple of years ago, I stepped back from the day to day at lowercase. I I gave the fund to my partner Matt Mazio, who's ten years younger than I am and incredibly talented. You know, I think most traditional firms would have a, hey, if you join and you keep your head down for ten years and you grind it out, maybe someday we'll recognize you as a junior partner. And after a couple of years, uh, Crystal and I, who were my, my wife Crystal, who's also a partner in our fund, we were really comfortable that Matt was the guy and we gave it to him. And that was another kind of why not now like a little way. It was, you know, we had this incredible asset. When you start doing well in venture capital and repeatedly returning money to investors and we've got, you know, not just probably the most successful venture fund of all time, um, but probably number four and five on the as well. Uh, and so we've just been cranking money back out for investors and it's, it's, there's so much momentum there. It's just easy to rest, invest, cash in on that and just keep raising more money and live off the fees. And so as hard as it was in the beginning to get started, it's really, really easy to keep it going now. And yet, uh, Crystal and I walked away from that. And that was another one of those moments that, you know, there's no one else telling you to do that. Zero people are rooting for you to stop doing what you're doing and giving you the advice that it's time. And so, you know, and again, this isn't something we agonized over for six months. We just, I think it just took kind of a week or two of walking through the woods and talking about it and saying, we did that. It's great. We were really good at it. We made everyone who bet on us a lot of money. We're super proud of the companies we backed. And there's other stuff we want to do now. And so we, we basically gave away our fund. Is that when you moved to Montana? And was this the, the time or was it um, Montana or was it maybe Tahoe that you decided you wanted to kind of go on the offensive? And Yeah, so that happened way back at the beginning. So okay. when I left Google in 07, I was one of the public faces of Google. So if you want to get in touch with Google, you 
would probably pitch me. My email address was very public. I was out there giving the speeches that Eric Schmidt was turning down. And so when I left, that torrent of, of inbound didn't stop. It might have even accelerated, frankly, because it was double. Like, hey, we can still go through him to get to Google. And by the way, uh, here's a guy who's starting to invest in startups. So, mm-hmm. And it wasn't the investing market wasn't as crowded back then. Uh, there weren't as many angels and, and uh, super angels or small micro funds or whatever you call it. So, so I was getting a lot. And what I found was I was just going to coffees all day. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. taking pitch after pitch after pitch. And by the end of the day, I would have enjoyed the conversations and felt like I was helpful to everyone that was meeting with me. But by the end of the day, I lost my voice and wasn't getting anything done that was on my to-do list. I was just responding to inbound all the time. And so I kind of got fed up with that and realized I wasn't going to get anything really important done for me unless I pulled out of that playing defense mode. And so again, in a why not now, I moved to Truckee, California. So that's on the North Shore of Tahoe. Uh, Truckee is a tech hub. It is a skiing hub. It's, it's a place with a bunch of kind of middle-class affordable rental ski houses. And I bought one I could barely afford uh, just around the time of the housing crisis. In fact, I had to shop around to a loan broker and I got one of those impound loans where they take a bunch of your payments and all the tax fees and stuff up front because they're not convinced you're going to be able to pay it back over time. And I moved to Truckee. And so right then at the beginning of my investing career, I decided to move into Tahoe. I mean, <laughs> it made no sense really it, on paper. I, have, I wasn't rich. I wasn't powerful. I couldn't command people to come up and meet me there. Uh, I did it before it made any sense at all. And yet I think that's why it was really effective. I moved up there with my then girlfriend, now wife, Crystal. And what we did was we got really methodical about who we, how we were going to respond to all of this defense we'd been playing. We said, instead, who do we want to know better? And we started writing lists of people that we wanted to, to be closer friends with or get to know. Even people we hadn't met yet, but we'd heard they were really fascinating. And we wrote out these lists and we would start inviting them up to Tahoe to literally come and stay with us for a few days. We would cook, we would hike, we would ski, we would throw on loud music and dance all night, hang out in the hot tub, and we would jam on idea. We would talk through companies that have since gone on to become, I mean, Travis was a guy who spent a ton of time at that house. And so it wasn't an accident that we were involved from the very earliest where Uber had been incorporated. Carrot Camp is a guy who's spent time up there. Um, David Yulovich at OpenDNS, another one of our big exits. Um, you know, guys like Matt Mullenweg, Tim Ferriss, Kevin Rose, the guys from Loku, uh, the guys from Lookout, Twilio, like just, these are all relationships that we decided we wanted to go into and really affirmatively build. And Truckee played a huge role in that. And when we would go down to San Francisco, we wouldn't tell anybody, we would sneak in. And instead of doing a bunch of coffees with random people, we would, we would host dinners or we'd do some really meaningful time with, uh, with the people that we had chosen. And as a result, I think we came away with great friendships, deep relationships, a really unfair advantage when it came to understanding the companies we were investing in or helping even to start. Uh, Evan Williams spent a ton of time in Truckee, for instance. Uh, 
So that was it. Yeah, we went on offense. But again, if you want to talk about a why not now moment, it didn't make any sense at the time. <laughs> Couldn't afford it, had no real source of income, uh, was basically saying, hey, I'm getting in the investing business by leaving Silicon Valley. Uh, and yet, I think it's one of the reasons why we did so well. So I had heard this story a bit when you interviewed yourself on Tim Tim's podcast, that deal where he has you ask yourself the questions and answer them all on your own. Um, one of those episodes, right? So you had shared the story and I was living, going through a pretty big transition myself and I was living on a boat in San Diego last year and I had heard this story and I'd been thinking about doing something similar in that moving up to the Black Hills in South Dakota. And it was that moment that I heard your story that I thought, exactly, see, I can do this. I am going to go on the offense and I am going to go learn and build what I want to build and learn. And Chris Saka did it, so so can I. And if he did it, then it turns out that it worked pretty well for him. At least I have those um, sound bites to, to defend myself when people say, that's career suicide. Why would you remove yourself so much? You're not close to LA or San Francisco or New York. And, and so I did it. And here I am sitting in the middle of the forest right now talking to you. And I have to say, I've never been happier, but I, I feel like my relationships within the industries that I've always kind of played in, but also just my career and there's been an energy shift and I don't know if it's going on the offensive or if it's just having more clarity, more time, but it has been incredible. And the reason I bring this up is I've had a couple of people reach out to me and say, you know, thanks for sharing that because, which is really thanks to you, because they have been told you need to move to New York or you need to do this. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on geographic anchors, like with the startups that you invest in, with with um, your expertise, how important is it to be in Silicon Valley or in LA or New York or even Austin? That's a good question. As an investor or as, a, or as somebody? As someone that's starting something new and maybe they aren't even looking for money yet, but just changing their course or wanting to get after their why not now. It kind of depends on your specific network of talent. So one of the biggest challenges in starting a company isn't necessarily writing the code or building that first prototype. It's attracting the other people to help you get that done. Nobody can do these things on their own, right? And so you need a nexus of talented people to help you. I, I'll give you an example. I am not a good investor for a company in London. And I've run into this a couple of times where I used to teach master classes at Oxford. I love being over there. It's super fun. There's great entrepreneurs there. And so I'd meet amazing people who were my students and I would invest in them. And then they would ask for the help, the same kind of help I'd give to entrepreneurs here in the U.S. And I just wasn't able to help with a lot of it. You know, they would say, hey, look, we're looking for a new VP of engineering. And I didn't have a stable of candidates the way I would here in the US. They would say, hey, we're looking for a cheaper office space or we need to expand, so we need to move somewhere else. And I didn't have references to send them on, oh, hey, I heard about this space opening up, you know, the way I would in San Francisco, LA, New York. And so my hands were kind of tied. 
And so I've, I've ended up focusing my geography as an investor to specific markets where I know I can be specifically helpful to the startup in the ways that I think make my investing unfairly advantageous for me. You know, I'm, I'm not throwing darts at a board. I'm picking companies that are already great, but where I know I specifically or Crystal specifically or Matt, my partner specifically, can make that company more valuable by some skill or effort that we put in. And we've had to restrict that geographically. Now that said, we've had startups succeed lots of places. We even had one in North Dakota. Um, but, but there I have to get really comfortable that they have all the geographic kind of allure and gravity to solve recruiting and space and the things that are very geographically specific. And then we can still help remotely with product and strategy and fundraising and storytelling and that kind of stuff. So, so what I would say is to somebody thinking about starting something up is you have to think not just do you have the good idea, have you been able to execute and get something to fruition, have you been able to attract the first one or two people to help you or attract maybe a little bit of funding to get started, but then you have to look around and be honest. Do I have the connections, do I have the network and the resources and the kind of the brand and the identity in this geographic region in order to attract the next 10 people, 20 people, 50 people to make this thing huge? And that can be really, really hard, but it can happen anywhere. Either Silicon Valley doesn't have any exclusivity on talent. And in fact, the talent there is getting really, really expensive. Uh, it's, an, it's expensive for people to live there, kind of prohibitive usually for people who aren't executives or engineers. They have to live far away in Silicon Valley. And so, so we have cool companies all around the country, but I think that's what you need to keep in mind as a founder. Will I be able to succeed in this geography because I have the connections and the network and the resources in hand to get that done. And that's, yeah, I think thinking through your specific, why not now? And if it's, if it's startup, if you're starting a company for sure, if it's, if it's not necessarily growing and building a company, but doing something different that it's just you for a while, it's probably a little bit different, but, um, that's good to hear. So I have so many things that I haven't been able to get to yet, but I also want to be cognizant of your time. Um, Twitter acquisition. We hear all the rumblings. Don't necessarily need you to make your prediction because I, I, that's already out there. Um, not necessarily prediction, but your your insight. But I have a question regarding the government. At any point, if you're able to share, was there a serious conversation about Twitter potentially being acquired by the government? Just thinking through the amount of data, the amount of of information that that could be folded in there. Are you not allowed to talk about it? No, no. I mean, no, the government doesn't buy stuff like that. I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, people reached out recently and said, what about it becoming a nonprofit? What about, uh, you know, buying and operating like the BBC is because it's such a treasure. So let me just respond by saying, let's separate Twitter, the product, uh, Twitter the business and Twitter the investment. Okay. I think we can all agree that Twitter the product is a beautiful, wonderful, and yet flawed and frustrating thing that is not living up to its full potential. And yet, if you use it, you care about it so deeply. You think it's an incredible cultural force. It's introduced so many of us to other people and voices that 
really deeply impact us. It's given a lot of us an opportunity to express ourselves in a scale that never before was possible. It amplifies this, the quietest signals on the planet when they need and deserve amplification. And, and so, and yet it's hard to use the, the hate and abuse are, are really, really an issue. Uh, and so, so that's Twitter, the product. We all want it to be better and we care about it. If you use it, you care about it. And by the way, everybody uses it, has opinions about how it could be better. And so that's another Sorry. reason who cares about it. Twitter, the business is actually a pretty fine business. It's generating billions of dollars in revenue. That number is growing over time. Uh, they've figured out great ways to monetize a service without really, you know, knocking users over the head. Um, their ads have shown to perform pretty well, uh, often better than Facebook ads. Really good ROI. Their video ads are great. And so, you know, and the company on paper loses money, but it's, it's important to say that most of their losses are attributable to what's called stock-based compensation. And so stock-based compensation is where they didn't used to have to do this, but uh, as accounting rules tightened up, they, uh, over the last like five, 10 years, it's changed from where stock options didn't count against your financials. So, um, so you didn't always get a really accurate perception of the business because the stock options were encountered there. But now that they are, as each of the employees vests into more and more of their options, then those are counted as expenses of the company because you're compensating those employees. And so those expenses make it look like the company is just lighting money on fire. What in reality is happening is that they're not just burning a bunch of cash. It's just they're transferring ownership with every day that people vest. They're transferring ownership from outside shareholders to employees. And that makes the value of, of the company, the, the portion of the company that the outside investors own, less valuable. And so as a result, it, it looks like a loss. I go to long lengths to point this out, not to defend the company or anything, but I just want to say to those who love the product, when we talk about the business, Twitter is not actually burning up a bunch of cash. It has more than enough cash on hand to operate for, and I forget, somebody did the analysis recently, but it's either like decades or centuries, I forget. It's on that scale though. So Twitter, the business is not going away anytime soon at all. But we'll pivot from that in discussion of Twitter, the investment. Twitter, the investment has been a brutal investment for anyone who got involved in the last couple of years. It's a great investment for anyone who got involved in the beginning. I mean, sure. it's not poo-poo the fact that you know, it's, it's a startup that went from zero to billions of dollars in overall value. That's amazing and it's fun to reflect on and I don't want that to be taken away from the people who built something that's had so much global impact and is, and is worth billions and millions of dollars. Obviously, the stock is down from its highs. The growth has slowed. They haven't figured out how to grow new users. They haven't shown the ability to improve the product materially. Uh, the company has lost a lot of its mojo and, uh, and the stock-based compensation is kind of eating into, it's diluting the outside investor ownership. And so as a result, it's been a brutal investment. It traded up recently on speculation that somebody's going to buy the company. It doesn't look like anyone's going to buy the company. And so the stock is trading back down again and things look bleak. So if you break it up into those three things, and I think what happens is when people, you know, ask, can the government buy it or can it be a nonprofit is those three channels all get blurred mm -hmm. and it leads mm -hmm. to panic by those of us who care so much about Twitter. And so I'll say the product is great. needs to be a lot better. 
but we all care about it so much, deservingly so. The business is is very healthy and Twitter's not going away. It's not one of these like, holy cow, if they don't raise more money by the end of the day or by the end of the week, they're going out of business. They'll be in business for decades. But see, it's not really a great stock to own and I wouldn't necessarily recommend owning the stock to anybody right now because I think the things that drive the stock price are things that Twitter still hasn't really figured out. I see. That is the best uh, insight and kind of Twitter uh, product business investment 101 because there, I was not aware of a lot of that. And I think, you know, it's it's important for users to kind of understand, no, this isn't going to go away. Yes, the business, the product could be better. Business is still generating. Um, it's, it's more of that event, uh, investment side of things too. So thank you for that. And real quick on the topic of politics, we don't need to necessarily get into candidates totally uh, aware of who you support if anyone follows you. And that's, that's awesome that you're showing your support. Do you feel that the tech community, the tech leaders are leveraging their voices and influence and even financial support enough when it comes to politics? So yeah, obviously I'm I'm a big Hillary Clinton supporter, mm-hmm. and I'm not just an anti-Trump person, but I'm a very pro-Hillary Clinton person, right? And I'm I'm that way for a number of reasons. Um, I do have progressive politics. So there's no doubt about it. I feel like the way I was raised, the opportunities I've had along the way, make give me a strong sense of empathy for what it's like to be in the struggle. You know, I grew up very luckily in a middle class family of parents who had graduate school educations. And yet um, we grew up outside of Buffalo in an auto parts community where I saw so many of my friends, parents laid off or have their pensions bankrupted along the way. And so I got a lot of exposure to that. My dad used to be a small town lawyer helping the um, the basically the underserved and underprivileged. And so I, I got to know a lot of them along the way and always did a lot of volunteer work. I went to Georgetown where it was a fancy private school and I had to borrow all the money to go there. Um, and I, that was the first time I was ever really exposed to rich folks. But part of the Georgetown education that was amazing was all the opportunity I had to study and live abroad in Latin America and see what it's really like to be on the wrong end of an economy and what it's really like to be struggling and how fortunate so many of us are here. Um, and yet also see what it's like when there's such disparate wealth, when there's such a big gap between rich and poor in an economy. Uh, all along the way, as I was raised, my parents made sure we had manual labor jobs. I worked in construction. I worked in restaurants. I've done prep. I, I did door-to-door sales. I, I had my little side entrepreneurial gigs. But um, I've I've always, always, always had jobs along the way that, again, I think really built a sense of empathy and what it's like um, to truly work for a living. I mean, your worst day in a startup doesn't compare to your worst day on a construction site or you're as a shift on an, you know, as a nurse or a firefighter, um, or in a restaurant or in a farmer's field. Uh, and so I, I mention all that to just say that, you know, I, I am a product of some of the social aspects of our system. I went to a private university, but I also went to the university of Buffalo at night to, uh, get a math degree when I was a kid. I did a year of law school at the University of Buffalo, too. So I'm a beneficiary of a state-sponsored education. Um, I'm a beneficiary of, you know, healthcare. I mean, I at 22, I found out I had to have, 21, I guess I was, 22. I found out I had to have heart surgery eight hours after I went to the doctor and found uh, just out of nowhere I had a heart condition. Like, wow. I'm a huge beneficiary wow. of 
of, uh, of having access to healthcare. And I think that's led to me being a healthy person who's even alive to talk to you today. And so all this informs what I think is a real duty we have to each other to have a social safety net. I think those of us who've been fortunate, which just as much as we like to tell stories of hustle and grind and taking risk and why not now, that kind of stuff, we really are beneficiaries of everything that's been put in place for us to succeed. And no one does it alone and we have a responsibility to pay that back and help take care of those who haven't been as fortunate. Um, whether they're people who you know failed at their own entrepreneurial efforts or just people who grew up poor, person of color, women, uh, people who don't have access to the internet, people who don't have access to food, you know, in the, in the basically the food deserts where there are no grocery stores, people who don't have access to healthcare. It's really, really important that we look out for those kinds of people. So that's one hat. A second hat is as a technologist, you know, there's only one candidate who's actually spent the time to listen to the technology community and build a real platform. You can go look at it at hillaryclinton.com. It's about broadband access expansion, which I think is not just pro-tech, but it's basically pro-citizenry at this point. Mm-hmm. Everyone should have a right to be on broadband internet, just like they have a right to water. Um, and it's about expanding cellular networks and make them more robust. It's about some aspects of net neutrality. It's about STEM education, making sure we really feed the pipeline of next generation of entrepreneurs, particularly in communities of color and among women in these programs. And so it really, we have a presidential candidate here and she's listened intently to the community and understands what's important to tech and has made that her official platform. Another hat I have is as a business person. You know, there's only one candidate right now who, if she's elected, the markets won't implode, interest rates won't skyrocket, the the transparency and the predictability of our capital markets will stay stable enough that this will still be the beacon for international economic freedom and an investment. You know, one of the reasons why people come here to build their startups is that we have the easiest and clearest, most reliable access to capital. You know, if another country gets ahead of us on that, they will be the place where the next big companies are built. And we can't have that. And as an investor, I want to really staunchly defend our market and our country's leadership in that, in that role. Um, I also, you know, she's also the only candidate who's recognized that Immigration is a net benefit to our economy, not just on the high end, bringing in the engineers who actually power our companies and the entrepreneurs who build these companies. But, you know, among the, the labor class, you know, it's been shown that they that immigrants don't actually cost our economy. They pay into our economy and create economic growth. And so so whether you look at it as, look, I am a liberal and I do believe we have a social obligation to look out for other people or I'm a technologist and I like the candidate who's actually spent the time to understand technology and how to move a, a tech agenda forward, or just as a greedy business person who wants to see the you know business thrive, whether it's small business who depend upon lower interest rates for financing their business, or big business who won't need you know bigger capital markets in the IPO window to stay open. There's really only one candidate in this race. And that's why to go back to your question about the tech community and what role they've been playing, you know, I think I've never seen anything unified, not just the tech community, but the business community as much as as Hillary Clinton has. I mean, it's it's fascinating. I, I've worked 
on Democratic campaigns. I worked with uh, Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012. And I certainly had well-intentioned but contentious debates with friends of mine in the tech and business community who were very Republican because what they saw in Mitt Romney, for instance, is a little more libertarian or conservative leader who would cut taxes, et cetera. And so, um, and, and I respected those debates. They were meaningful and they were thoughtful. And, you know, again, for those other reasons I cited, I disagreed. But this time around, the guy we are running against is such a mess. He doesn't read, he doesn't study, he doesn't attract anyone around him to give him real advice. He's, he can't have a conversation and listen. Uh, and as a result, that's why his policy and his, and his behavior is so erratic. Nobody knows what to expect from this person, particularly on some of these complex issues that are ahead. I mean, look, at the end of the day, the, 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 the job of being president is pretty damn boring. I've been lucky enough to be close to this president, to Barack Obama, and the guy reads all day long, right? I, I, yes, there are fun moments where, you know, I asked him once, um, have you had any pinch me moments? And he jokingly was like, no, no, never. He's like, I always grew up assuming I would sit at a baseball game in Cuba uh, watching two U.S. team, you know, Major League Baseball teams play each other with Castro on one side of me and Derek Jeter on the other. He's like, I always assumed that would happen. You know, just so he was joking. There were definitely these amazing pinch me moments. But the reality is most of it is hard work, hard decisions, lots of listening, lots of weighing advice and making life, life or death decisions. And, and there's one person I'm confident has the temperament and the, the strength and the wisdom and the personality and the humility to do that. And so that said, one of the things that's real though is the fear I think a lot of people in Silicon Valley have about stepping up and, and actively vocally supporting her. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that was evidenced in the, in this most recent debate where he made clear he would, uh, he would appoint a special prosecutor to investigate her. Oh, and yeah. he said just a couple lines later, you know, if I were in charge, you'd be in jail. Uh, that's, that's what happens in the developing world as someone who's lived yeah. in, you know, through coups in Latin America, that's what happens there. And, and I think a lot of my friends in business have been increasingly legitimately worried that there'll be retribution for, uh, for supporting Hillary in the event that, uh, that Donald is elected. And so what I have seen is a lot more quiet support where donations have even being just have been given at large scale, but to organizations that sign up new voters, for instance, uh, to nonprofits like that, where they'll hopefully be having a democratic impact on the election, but without having to publicly identify as a Hillary supporter, because there's yes. real that's good news. That's see, that's very insightful, and and everything you just shared with your rationale and impact on tech and business and and even you know all the social issues. It's it's good to hear that there is even you know maybe some things going on that people don't realize in terms of support because it's been a little bit concerning to me to not see or hear more, um, either one way or the other, hopefully one way, but because of the amount of influence and the amount of power that a lot of the tech leaders have, and not only that, but the, the intelligence and the impact on our economy. So, um, with that being said too, it's, I'm hoping that the public office, um, is more attractive to some of the tech leaders as well down the road and, and, or, um, you know, 
people that are thinking more progressively because we need another crop of of politicians, you know, to come up and that think differently. And so that's a good thing to hear. Um, but I was just curious kind of on the at large. And I, I know that we need to wrap this up, but for the future, Chris, is there anything that you've been thinking about doing that you haven't yet or that maybe you're going to do soon that has been a why not now? Yes. Uh, and I'm not going to tell you yet. You're not. That's the whole show. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Uh, that's how real it is, is that um, it's it's not up to me, but I think uh, my family and I are going to do something really big really soon. Um, it's something we've been working on for a while, and that wouldn't have been possible if we hadn't kind of retired from the venture fund. And, um, and so I'm pretty excited. Oh, that's exciting. And which, but you'll know exactly when it happened. And the, the dissection of how it happened. And, and you said you had to kind of take a step back in order to make this happen. So step back from other things, anything else that was a moment that kind of triggered or propelled you forward, even though we can't talk about what it is, or the, if you were to look at, oh, that's when we really greenlit this, what would that be? Yeah. I mean, let's see. You know, I, I'll i say I've been more involved in this election than any election before, particularly financially. And my wife and I put um, seven figures into this election, and that's seven figures more than we planned to. And I think, you know, one of the why not nows was I didn't want to have to look my daughters in the face later and, and explain to them that we could have done more to save America from this guy. And so that was a, that was a recent why not now. Um, you know, we... Um, we're building a new climate initiative that we haven't talked about much that, um, that again, there, there's an area of, of climate science called geoengineering that we just realized was being underfunded and there wasn't a lot of attention being paid to it. And so we're building something around there that we'll announce. And it was just another one of those, like we kept looking for other people's research and we're like, well, if it's not here, we may as well do it ourselves. Um, and so that's something big that we started, um, you know, I just, I think that's kind of in the nature of our life is to, um, you know, we have a, we have a place in Los Angeles where we moved, um, to, uh, to help raise our kids when we had three kids in under five years. And what was, uh, funny about that was we basically decided on a Monday that we should probably look for somewhere warmer than Truckee to raise kids in the first couple of years. And I think nine days later we owned a house in LA. So we, that's just how we roll is, you know, as you pointed out, we're very lean. It's easy to give your venture fund away when there's only a couple of people working there. It's easy to walk away from the business when there's only a couple of people there. Um, and, and you're going to hopefully if things all come together. You're going to see some, uh, something big come from us soon. That will be a, a large pivot from what we do for a living. Wow. That's exciting. That is exciting. And I appreciate you sharing even that much. And not only that, but, um, I have followed your path for a long time and I have so much respect for everything you've done and, and the way that you do things and truly honoring the why not now kind of vibe. Um, but I can't thank you enough, Chris, for your time. And we will be following closely to see what this kind of unveiling is. Um, and thank you. Hey, thank you. And congrats on the new podcast. And, um, Hey, by the way, th this is the lamest thing ever. Cause I'm not a plugger, but, uh, everyone's got to watch shark tank on Friday nights on ABC. 
Absolutely. Uh, I'll make I sure. think my, I'm in a bunch of episodes this season. We didn't get to talk about Shark Tank, so we'll have to talk some other time about. Yes, we do. there are like 97 questions here, things that I <laughs> – so maybe you can come back. But I will make sure we um, – we have people tune in and I'm an avid watcher and love my Friday nights. So <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things on that. One is I think my first episode is November 4th. Okay. They don't really, they kind of determine them dynamically, but they like to put mine on during sweep suites because they get pretty exciting because now there's somebody to finally fight with Cuban. And, <laughs> uh, and I would say the one thing that I've enjoyed doing is that, during the West Coast feed of the show, I like to put on Periscope and kind of do live, like a live viewing party of Shark Tank. So I basically give running commentary of the show while watching the show. I love it. And that. I think a lot of people have fun doing that. And so it's fun. You can just, you can obviously find my feed on SACA on Twitter. I'm also SACA on Snapchat, S-A-C-C-A. Awesome. That's great. I will make sure to follow too on Periscope when you're, you're doing the a live um, behind the scenes, behind the scenes type of thing. So there's a lot of fun stories to tell. That's awesome. Well, thank you for that too. And um, hope to be in touch and stay in touch. It's been honestly an honor to talk to you. I'm all nerding, nerding out here. So well, thanks for taking the time and congratulations again. Oh, thank you so much. Take care. So there you have it. Chris Saka. There were several times in that interview when I would say, okay, Chris, we got to start doing rapid fire round. We have to answer these questions quicker because I have so many more. So hopefully he will uh, join us again down the road. You can follow him at Saka on Twitter and he's quite active. So make sure to also check out Shark Tank. It airs uh, new episodes on Friday evenings and Chris is a guest. What's cool about his uh, situation is he likes to do live Periscope during the airings of the episodes that he's in. So you get to hear kind of what was going through his head. You get to hear this commentary that you, you wouldn't typically. So make sure you check him out on Shark Tank. So there's been a why not now I've been thinking about for quite a while of my own. And it's finally time to put it out there. And you may have seen it this last weekend. I actually posted on Instagram that I am going back to school. So this is a big deal. It's something I've been thinking about for a long time. I have my undergrad degree from Arizona State University, which when I attended, it was the number one party school in America, ranked by Playboy. So I've got that going for me. But I've been thinking a lot over the last year or so about going back to school. I love to learn. I love to be a student. I consider myself a student of life, that's for sure. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is how can I do this and still maintain everything else that I'm doing and find the time and a way to kind of customize my curriculum. And so I'm on that journey. I've enrolled in a few classes just to get my feet wet, but what I'm looking to do is creating a, a custom program that blends sociology with social communication, so social media, and cyber psychology. So really looking at the impact that the online world has on our offline world. And those two worlds have been colliding for a long time, the virtual world and the physical world. And I feel like I've really been living right in the middle of that because of what I've 
done with my company, what my kind of world has been. So I'm looking to learn more about the sociology side of things, but also the impact that this has on us. So I'm looking to learn more and be more valuable as I'm doing this research with various scientists studying the impact that the online world has on the offline and vice versa. But hopefully I'll be able to bring more to the table because right now I have a lot of that digital marketing, digital analytics, and kind of um, media side of things and discipline to bring to the conversation. And I'm looking to just offer more so I can make a bigger impact, be more valuable. And so that is what I'm super excited to announce. And this is a great excuse for me to get a Trapper Keeper again. You know, those Velcro cool folder things. Pretty excited about that. But stay tuned and I'll keep you posted on the journey. Right now I'm in a lot of discovery phase and hopefully some academic institution will take me. everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. Hit me up on social media to let me know what you think. I'm at Amy Jo Martin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And I want to hear your why not now moments so I can share them on the show. Just send me a note to why not now at amyjomartin.com. For show notes and other offers, you can visit amyjomartin.com forward slash why not now. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for my email newsletter for exclusive content and announcements. A big thanks to Rock Salt Music for all of the tunes by the talented John Coggins. And of course, a hat tip to Richard Gruer for editing and producing the show. I'll see you next time. And until then, why not now? <laughs>